0: Today on the Sunshine Economy, how some South Florida small businesses survived two years of COVID-19 and are growing again.
1: We're being creative. We're starting new events. We're bringing things back that we used to do that we don't do anymore.
0: First, it was the virus. Now, small firms are dealing with new challenges like inflation. For the first time in 10 years, we
2: had a price increase last month. I'm Tom Hudson.
0: Small businesses employ about half of all workers in the region, making them an important driver of the economy.
3: The way the Florida economy boomed right after the pandemic, we benefited significantly from all that.
0: It's all next on The Sunshine Economy. Welcome to the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening. A singer from Canada helped bring Jamie Martis to South Florida. Hi,
4: welcome to Timmins. This is my hometown.
2: It's where I grew up. It's about 200 miles south of the Arctic Circle, and today it's about 35 degrees below zero. It's very cold.
0: It was the late 1990s, and Martis was working setting up big concert stages and lighting rigs across the country. He spent a couple of months in Miami helping get ready for a big concert at Bayfront Park that was a network television special. And the star was one of the biggest country music singers at the time.
4: Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Shania Twain.
0: The stage and lights were taken down eventually, but Martis came back and stayed in South Florida. 10 years ago, what started as a hobby in the back of his warehouse where he stored his stage lighting equipment began growing into a business, roasting coffee beans. The first business name was a nod to Martis's entertainment industry background, center stage coffee.
2: Back when I started roasting coffee, I didn't like Cuban coffee and I needed coffee like I had in California. So uh, I bought a small coffee roaster And hired someone to teach me how to roast coffee.
0: Then he started selling the beans online through Amazon and eventually changed the name to Coffee Cult. Coffee with a K, cult with a K. His early adoption of e commerce helped drive the company during the worst economic times of the COVID 19 pandemic. People were staying away from the office, shopping online, and still drinking coffee. 95% of Coffee Cult's sales were coming through Amazon for a time during the pandemic. Jessie Leon would have liked to have had any business during those early months of the pandemic two years ago.
1: We canceled so many and then we just looked like okay in 2023 or 2022 things are going to get better let's just plan more events.
0: She is one of three owners of Pandora Events which describes itself as a powerhouse lesbian event production company.
1: (laughs) We're just sitting around you know, hoping you know, things would change. And now we're starting to see it just, you know, especially here in our state. I mean, I, I, compared to other states, this has been open a long time.
0: Florida was one of the first states to reopen after the unprecedented measures taken beginning two years ago this month. On March 17, 2020, Governor Ron DeSantis ordered all bars and nightclubs closed to help slow the spread of COVID-19. Restaurants were first ordered to limit the number of diners to half their capacity. That same day, Miami-Dade County asked restaurants to close, except for takeout and delivery orders. Other local governments would follow. Events were canceled, and Leon's business came to a halt. So did Rosanna Bermejo's business. She started a personal wellness center in 2010 in what she called a little cave of an office at the University of Miami Hospital. She left that space at the end of 2019, just as she was beginning to hear about some virus in China.
3: I remember being on December break when my son starts telling me, mom, there's some virus in China. I'm like, what? I, I don't have a lot of time to, <laughs> to, I mean, I know what's going on, but I don't have a lot of time to dig in and, and, and follow it. And, and so I kept going.
0: She had just opened the Coral Gables location of her company, MedAesthetics Miami. Two days after closing bars, Governor DeSantis issued another executive order, this one stopping all elective medical procedures with the goal of having hospital capacity to treat COVID-19 patients.
3: When the pandemic hit us at the end of March, it was, I was like, oh my God, what are we going to do now? You know, two months and a half closed. Uh, we have employees. We had to get rid of some employees.
0: She was scrambling for workers when business not only reopened, but business boomed with pent-up demand by customers who had been saving money and getting COVID-19 stimulus checks. Brian Parento is experiencing the same sharp pandemic rebound in his business. This year might be our best year ever. He's part owner of Drink Bar and Lounge and Tulio's Tacos and Tequila Bar. Both are in Wilton Manor's. He credits one of the universal drivers of business in Florida, especially this time of year, the weather, and pandemic exhaustion.
4: Business as of lately has been it's, has been better than usual. Um, I think a lot of it has to do with an influx of uh, new people living here. People are kind of maybe fed up or tired of the winters, and then you pack a little COVID on top of that, and no outdoor seating, and uh, I think you... Uh, You want to move south. That's affected us, you know, positively.
0: This quartet of small business owners represent different industries, but they are among the bedrock of the South Florida economy. Small companies. About one out of every five people working in South Florida work for a small company. We're talking very small, less than 20 workers. Half of all the workers in the region work for companies with less than 500 workers. And those working at these small companies tend to be paid less. Before the pandemic, workers at very small firms were making 83 cents for every dollar made by someone working for a big company with more than 500 workers. A year ago, despite the rapid economic rebound, very small company workers had fallen further behind, making just 61 cents for every dollar in average monthly earnings by big company employees. We'll hear more from this group of small business owners about how they've navigated the pandemic and are dealing now with new challenges like looking for employees and inflation. You're listening to the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Stay in touch with us via email. Send us a note, sunshineeconomy at WLRNnews.org. Our email address is sunshineeconomy at WLRNnews.org. Each Monday, we examine the stories and hear voices of people shaping South Florida's economy. Listen for the BBC News Hour Tuesdays through Fridays at 9 a.m. to hear stories and voices from around the globe. Still to come, inflation heating up for a coffee roaster.
2: For the first time in 10 years, we had a price increase last month.
0: I'm Tom Hudson. We're back on the Sunshine Economy here on WLRN. Thanks for listening. Jamie Martis has spent more than a half million dollars on new equipment for his small business during the two years of the pandemic. He owns Coffee Cult, a small coffee roaster in Hollywood. On the day we visited in late February, his newest purchase, which he paid cash for, was a coffee grinder that can grind 1,500 pounds of beans an hour. And it was sitting idle. It hadn't even been set up, it was so new. What does this new grinder, in terms of financial investment, represent to you?
2: $140,000. We own everything in our building. So an
0: investment of $140,000, what does that represent to you in terms of making that decision to make that kind of commitment? It's a,
2: it's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. And the reason we made that commitment was to... We bought that grinder for specifically so we could have a new brand that's coming out probably next year. It's a different ground coffee product than we normally offer. Most of our products are at 99% whole bean uh, for our customers. So we, the ground market is a totally different type of market. So we want to get in that market and that, that machine will help us get, get there.
0: It's an investment in expansion, just one part of his strategy to grow his operation. There's also the $250,000 so far for a new bottling operation for cold brew coffee and another 250 dollars he expects to spend this year on that business as that line begins producing for the first time this week. Yes, and
2: uh, this is a significant investment. It's just that uh, we have to spend the money and we have to keep up and we either we're going to grow or we won't or we'll shrink. So,
0: And you're able to make these investments right from operating cash flow? Currently, yes. So, currently everything's paid for from operating. It's a small operation, 12 full-time workers, 8 part-time. He expects to sell about $6 million worth of his coffee cult brands like Dark Roast, Thunderbolt French Roast, and Eye Cracker Espresso Beans. Those were roasting when he showed us the roasting facility.
2: It's not quite big enough to be a plant, I don't think, but not small enough to be a garage. So the first thing we have is uh, our 70 kilo coffee roaster that roasts 154 pounds of coffee every 15 minutes. Describe the smell in here, much different than the coffee shop smell. Yes, so green coffee and roasting coffee goes through, uh, as a roast it will smell differently. So I, I personally think roasted coffee, fresh roasted coffee smells like warm baked cookies which is awesome, and after 10, 15 years of roasting coffee, I still love it.
0: Like most small business owners, he's passionate and proud of the company he has built. He helped design and build a robotic arm that boxes up the roasted beans to get them ready to be shipped. Martis sells direct to consumer. You won't find coffee cult beans in grocery stores and only in a few coffee shops. This business model saved him when the economy shut down two years ago. And then his business blew up with people working from home, shopping online. 95% of his sales came through Amazon at one point. We sat down to talk about the business in his office in Hollywood. Tell me about the revenue mix. The last six months, last year, we've really seen a big shift in in
2: our e-commerce. Amazon used to be about 95% of our business. It's much less than that. It's probably more like 60%. What
0: was it before the pandemic? Uh,
2: it was about 95%. And uh, what we see now is we see more customers coming to us directly. That's They're familiar with the brand. And we're also seeing our retail operation in the front has picked up significantly in the last three to four months as people are definitely getting out more.
0: By retail, you mean this shop here yeah. in Hollywood? Uh, yes, so it used to not be
2: open at all, and now uh, it's it's busy. I look back, I see the numbers at the end of the month. I'm like, wow, I didn't realize that we were that busy up, <laughs> up there, which is great. How's business? Business is pretty good. Customers seem to still be drinking coffee, and they're drinking Coffee Cult, which is what we prefer for them to do. <laughs>
0: Describe the business of coffee cult over the last two years of the pandemic. Business in general has changed for us,
2: and I don't. It's never going to go back to what it was before. We've seen our shipping cost of a container of coffee from Brazil. We've seen we used to pay sixteen hundred dollars from Brazil to New Jersey. So it basically, goes for, from Brazil to New Jersey, and then go on the train to Jacksonville to us is the normal coffee route. Um, that used to be sixteen hundred dollars. During the pan- last eight months of the pandemic, it was about twenty five hundred dollars, between twenty four hundred and twenty eight hundred dollars. And uh, this year, starting January first, is six thousand. That's a huge increase in the cost of goods to to the to us, and then the, it has to be go to the customer. And we're seeing the same, very similar with other coffee destinations or exporters as well some are not as bad some are are worse Uh, but that's just one example of of things that we've seen we've also seen products like bags harder to get Mm -hmm. a lot more difficult so if we have the coffee but no bags that that's a, a a problem as well and bag bag pricing has increased from 37 cents to 57 cents so it's it's a significance and it's just fifty seven cents, but fifty seven cents times ten thousand winds up uh, being a chunk of change and then uh, the shipping cost six thousand dollars to ship a container of coffee isn't huge, but that goes that goes to the overall price of of
0: of the product so everything adds up. You've clearly seen your input costs increase in some cases significantly that shipping cost which goes right into the cost of the coffee. What about on the demand side?
2: Demand side, during COVID, people were staying at home. They had to stay at home. We had lockdown orders. And they were ordering products online like they were going out of style. So a lot of our capital investment came from from being able to sell online during the pandemic. Uh, The buying trends, we've seen customers, things are starting to open back up. So we're seeing a reduction in that which was a, we expected that. Uh, thank goodness. I don't know if we could have kept up at those, those, those speeds forever. Uh, so a little break is, is okay. Uh, uh, we're seeing uh, different trends. Uh, one thing with our e-commerce is we do a lot of analytics. We know a lot about our customers' purchasing behavior, and we know what days of the week they like to purchase products and things of that sort and what times of the month. And uh, we're seeing a lot of that change. So uh, some of that's because some people are like doing half schedules at their office where they're staying home and it's just changed. It's everything has changed. It's it's all different, which is exciting, but also challenging at the same time. How has the business grown during the pandemic? With people staying home, uh, we definitely saw a increase in sales of, Folks drinking coffee at the at their house instead okay. of the office. How big? So at one point we it was 150 percent annual
0: increase. Annual increase. You had more than doubled. Yeah. Your revenue. Yes. Wow. Is that sustainable? Has it been sustainable? I think we still see about 45 percent,
2: which we maintained, which is okay with us. We did never really wanted to run it that hard anyway.
0: 45 percent annual revenue growth is what you're expecting to come out of the exponential growth that you experienced right after the beginning of the pandemic, that's substantial. How are you managing that? How are you able to keep up with that technology? How so? Uh, with building our robots in production with
2: automation, production automation, the labels, the, uh, robots putting coffee in bags, uh, being more organized organization is key. Uh, if you're not organized, it's really hard to run an effective business, Uh, We have our own app that we created in-house internally for our our tracking, our
0: ordering process. That's not a consumer app. That's That's your own internal internal app. app. So So you can go on your smartphone and figure out how efficient the roaster is running today.
2: Right. I can tell you how how many batches this ran today, how many it ran yesterday compared to last week, compared to last month to how much coffee inventory we have so every time uh, we roast the the program knows the roaster roasted 154 pounds of coffee so it removes it from our inventory uh gives us alerts when we're getting low on on different types of inventory it also tracks the products of where they are and uh, what we have ordered and what is what what should be coming in and what should be going out
0: Jamie, with the increase in cost of goods that you described uh, shipping costs increased cost of bags for instance, how elastic are those customer prices are those consumer prices that you're able to uh, get customers convert customers keep customers and it's a very interesting question of uh, price
2: uh, uh, pricing and customers and we've been we, we we as a company we're eating a lot of the the cost for a while and because we wanted we didn't want to disrupt disrupt the pricing for the customer because we knew that customers that no one wants to pay more money we don't want to pay more money for the bags either or shipping or or whatever project it is but we wanted to do our best to keep our prices the same and for the first time in 10 years we had a price increase last month
0: tell me about that decision what what was that like to walk up to that, and what ultimately led you to say, "I need to raise prices"?
2: Margins. So There's basically no margin. We were making no money or losing money on Amazon by, and it not Amazon's. It's no one's fault. It's just the price. We were at twenty four ninety nine for a thirty two ounce dark roast bag of coffee for ten, almost ten years, and uh, those prices
0: had to go up. Your net income on that $25 bag of coffee was essentially zero. It used to be
2: eight, and it was like zero. It was $8. It was what we used 10 years ago. And now, now, if it's two to four, we'd be happy. So, margins have definitely gone down. You can
0: make up for some of that on volume, but yes, you got to have a exactly. substantial increase in volume if you're seeing that margin drop by more than 50, 60, 70%.
2: Correct. So Amazon took a lot of that margin away from us um, with increased fees and everything goes up. That's just how it goes. But pricing, we're not increasing with those fees. And then with uh, the cost of goods sold from products uh, or for our products uh, in the last year. Basically, it, it, it we had to do it. How about the grocery market? Is that a market you want to get into? No. The grocery market is not for us. And why is that? Not currently. So, <laughs> uh, not currently. The, You're quick, quickly adding that. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, well, as I don't want to ever say never in business. Sure. But I can tell you that uh, the grocery market is very competitive for coffee. You'll see the coffee aisle grow and a bunch of coffees there, and then you'll see it shrink. And the reason for that is because a lot of people will want in the grocery business, and then they realize it's very price competitive there. You're more likely to sell because you have a better price than a better product
0: sitting on the shelf. Uh, So uh, our customer, we don't want to compete with that. That's Coffee Cult owner Jamie Martis speaking with us in his office in Hollywood. The company received $100,000 from the first Paycheck Protection Plan program. Three-fourths of it went to keep 11 workers employed and paid. Since then, he's had to raise pay to at least $20 an hour, started a 401k employee retirement plan, and added health insurance. The company pays 75% of the employee's health care premium. This is the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Check out the podcast of this program and all of our programs by searching Sunshine Economy on your favorite podcast app. Still to come on this program, the rapid rebound for a personal wellness care company.
3: The way the Florida economy boomed right after the pandemic, we benefited significantly from all that.
0: Welcome back to the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening and supporting public broadcasting. We're hearing from a quartet of small business owners across South Florida. They represent different industries that were impacted differently by the pandemic of the past two years. Yet each of them survived with the help of emergency government COVID grants and are growing again. The day we spoke with Rosanna Bermejo from her office in the personal wellness center she owns was the same day. She had signed up for a nurse practitioner's master's degree program.
3: And I signed up today for my master's in nursing.
0: You signed up today as we're talking?
3: Yeah. (laughs) Well, I had applied last week.
0: But today was the day you took that next step.
3: Exactly. Wow.
0: Congratulations. Well, thank you. (laughs) She's continuing her education as she continues growing her small company, Med Aesthetics Miami. It has two locations and now Bermejo is planning on opening a third even as she goes back to school. Her centers offer skin treatments, laser hair removal, personal wellness consultations.
3: The field of wellness is evolving at such a pace and the, it's revolutionary into what it's doing and what, can, what it can accomplish as we age. And I, I just think that there's so much more that you can do. You can do, you can go up to the next to the next level of treatments and and understand the research behind them, and so that will allow me to bring the best technology and the best treatments to my clients, which is really my my end goal.
0: How have the last two years of the pandemic influenced this decision about going back to school to pursue a master's while at the same time continuing to pursue growth for your company?
3: I don't think the pandemic impacted much my plans because I always had it in my in my, in my projections that this is what we were going to do. I think that the pandemic just created increased awareness of why what we're doing is good for people and why it's, a, it's, it, it's, it's bringing value into society. It just reinforced my vision.
0: The company has nine full-time employees now. Two years ago, as protective measures were put in place to slow the spread of COVID-19 and the economy ground almost to a halt, her center was closed for two and a half months. She had to let some employees go. The firm received grants from the two rounds of the Paycheck Protection Program. Together, they totaled almost $38,000, helping keep about four people on payroll.
3: I took those two months and a half to just research and research and research, and I redesigned my entire marketing strategy, and I was more on social media because I knew people were going to be on social media. And I just started reinventing not only the whole marketing but the whole operation because I finally had the time to sit down and do nothing, you know? Which I never have that time, so it was actually a blessing in disguise.
0: How did the company change with that time down?
3: I looked into new technologies and I brought new machines. I got rid of old ones, and I brought new services. For example, I brought IPL services, which are for um, skin rejuvenation, for photo facials, for spots, and things like that.
0: Where did the capital for that kind of investment come from at this time?
3: We knew we had to expand, so we already had. Um, we already had a few uh, lenders in place signed up for. We already had money signed that we were, we had, you know?
0: And those lenders stuck with you?
3: They stuck with me because I had been with them for 10 years. So they knew me, right? When the pandemic hit, I called one of them. I'm like, hey, I don't know what's going to happen. I need you to lend me more because this is a pandemic. We don't know what's going on. So they, they came to me and they gave me a check. And so I just kept going.
0: Are you financing the growth? through the loans, or are you able to finance it through some of your revenue as well?
3: <laughs> That's a tricky question. Um, I, I think both, you know. I think we do through both.
0: How have the economics of personal health and wellness changed because of the pandemic, both in terms of the demand side of your clients, but also the supply side, the equipment, the training, and the personnel you need?
3: Personnel was one of the biggest um, challenges. The pandemic really changed the psyche of the people. And I don't know if this was for the better or for the worse, but it was really hard to find people who wanted to work and who wanted to work with passion and to do the best they could do. The pandemic really affected that people had a salary. I remember I made a job offer because I had to get rid of employees, but then then they were gone, they were out of state, whatever. So when I had to bring them back in, I called this lady and I made her a proposal. She said, no, I have money from the government. I really, I'm going to wait until this wave rides through and then we'll talk. And I'm like, no, I don't want people who are going to tell me that they're waiting for the government, you know, money and they can't work with me at this time. So I never called her back. I don't know what to tell you. By the same token, I have right now a very good team. It's, it's a lot of effort and a lot of education and a lot of teamwork and spirit that we need to bring, but human resources has far, by far been our, our greatest challenge.
0: And how have you addressed that? Uh, you're not unique in that aspect. It's certainly not only in the healthcare business. It's in the hospitality business. It's across the board. Every industry has been experiencing this.
3: I don't really know how I managed to survive that.
0: <laughs> Is it over then? If you've survived it, do you, do you sense that that, uh, that challenge has been addressed?
3: No, it's better, but it's not over. It, it, the people are starting to need a little more more money to work or whatever the reason the motivation is but it's better but it's not over the challenge is still there and I just called people in all the time and I had to rotate them and be on top of them and the quality of their treatment that they did and if they were not there I had to do the treatment one of the good things one of the reasons why I decided that I wanted to know everything I did in this company is because that way I can manage and I control I would get people telling hey Rosanna I can't work tomorrow and I'm done I'm not coming back so they would leave me a portfolio of clients the next day with nobody to take care of them. And guess who had to take care of them? It would be me. So thankfully, I knew what to do, and I knew how to take care of people, and we just kept going, and I, we just, we're just we still here.
0: Here, growing, and going back to school. Rosanna Bermejo owns and runs Skin Care and Personal Wellness Center, Med Aesthetics Miami. You're listening to The Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Catch the BBC News Hour Tuesdays through Fridays at 9 a.m. here on WLRN. Still to come on this program, a small restaurant tour doubles down during a pandemic.
4: At the very least, if I could add a, a, a lot more outdoor seating, I could still, you know, succeed.
0: I'm Tom Hudson. This is the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. Thanks for listening. Next week will be two years when bars in Florida could not open for business business as usual, was over because of COVID-19. Brian Parento remembers that day.
4: Fully closed, so there was nothing we could do. We had no idea when we were going to reopen.
0: He owns Drink Bar and Lounge in Wilton Manors. It would be closed for more than three months. His business received its first Paycheck Protection Program loan of almost $100,000 to pay paychecks of 20 people.
4: Then we reopened in July. It was hard as heck. We weren't allowed to serve at the bar. We needed six feet spacing. You were only allowed 50% capacity. You could not stay open past 10 p.m. And code enforcement, they were out in full force.
0: In fact, Parento said code enforcement officers visited the bar several times after it reopened with the COVID-19 restrictions in place. Oftentimes, the reason was because someone passing by complained that people were sitting at the bar, which was against regulations at that time, and Drink has a large bar.
4: So it looked very, very weird. It felt really weird, and it felt like it was just not right, with nobody at the bar and just tables around
0: the bar seated. Sure, it was open again, but it didn't have the same atmosphere. So Parento had an idea.
4: We went out and we purchased a bunch of mannequins. And we, we set these mannequins up and we had the staff come in. And we said, all right, guys, dress these guys up, you know, any way you want.
0: The bar was open at half capacity and serving drinks, but no one could actually sit at the bar except the mannequins.
4: And we dressed these guys and everyone looked so funny. And we sat them around the bar and it was crazy. Like if you were sitting there having a drink out of your peripheral, it looked like there was people sitting at the bar.
0: So realistic from a distance that code enforcement officers were called a few times to check.
4: Code enforcement would show up and like, hey, we heard you're serving customers at the bar. And we said, yeah, yeah, these are our customers. There were a bunch of mannequins and we would put fake drinks in front of them.
0: Those drinks were fake, but customers were returning. Eventually, bars and restaurants could reopen without restrictions. And Parento was ready with his second business, Tulio's Tacos and Tequila Bar only about 1,000 feet away from drink.
4: It was a very uh, risky time, a lot of uh, anxiety. Um, You know, so when COVID hit, I was probably six months into the construction and build-out of the uh, Mexican restaurant. So I did definitely pause it, you know, for about a month or two during the height of COVID, call it March, April, May, uh, while everything was pretty much shut down. But, you know, I, I felt like abandoning that project would have been the right thing to do. So I, I kind of pushed forward and I, I took into consideration, you know, people's, you know, opinions, you know, health issues and stuff. So I felt like at the very least, if I could add a, a, a lot more outdoor seating, I could still, you know, succeed. And being that I'm um, on a corner, there's a large amount of sidewalk that's actually owned by the city. And they told me I was allowed to uh, put some tables out there. So I I basically expanded my footprint. What used to be, you know, call it, I'm not sure, but 10 tables outside became 30 tables outside.
0: Did that save the business plan?
4: Absolutely did. And it, it, it actually helped us get to where we needed to get to because for the first, call it I don't know six months. We didn't have a lot of indoor seating. People didn't want to sit indoors. No one wanted to sit at the bar. You know, we had a lot of these um, plexiglass partitions everywhere, so it, it, it took a lot of the allure out of being inside. You know, so you 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 know, it reminded you of COVID because you're you're boxed in a little cubicle with uh, plexiglass on each side of you, and you know, and then you're separated from you know, kind of the energy and the excitement because there's not another table. You know you know it's another 10 15 feet away so the inside was a bit dull but on the outside that's where we made up for it so we had like a lot of fun we could put the tables a little closer people felt a little more relaxed you know people seemed happier outside as well and that has continued we i mean we still do out indoor seating but everyone our outdoor fills up first and then the indoors
0: Weather notwithstanding, which is terrific this time of year, of course, do you think that that is partially because of the pandemic, because of COVID precautions that people are still willing to take?
4: Yes, I think a lot has to do with COVID. I think people, um, you know, maybe maybe they wouldn't have sat outside, you know, call it two years ago if it was a little rainy or a little humid or a little hot. But now I think they've kind of almost formed a habit.
0: Brian, you work and invest in the industry that was hardest hit by the restrictions that were put in place to slow the pandemic in those early days, weeks, and months two years ago. Is the industry better off today in South Florida?
4: Well, maybe the businesses that went out of business aren't better off, but I think the ones that survived are better off. Maybe the ones that fell off, maybe they needed to fall off. Maybe they... uh, they didn't have what it takes. They didn't have the right business model or maybe just bad timing gives the, you know, owners of those places time to reset and maybe regroup. But I think we're better off. I think that being more health conscious, I think increasing outdoor seating has is, is always been a great thing, but I think it's even better now. I think that cities and uh, counties have loosened up um, on the amount of outdoor seating before you, you weren't allowed to encroach in sidewalks. You weren't allowed to encroach city property. Now they allow you to do that. Like where our restaurant is, we're on a, a city sidewalk and we have tables on the sidewalk and the city is you know, very good with that there. And which is great. You know, the city's working with us prior to COVID, we were not allowed to be there.
0: At the same time as the COVID economic rebound, the restaurant rebound continues you're dealing with two other big forces in this regional economy, certainly. One is inflation, and the other one is a real labor shortage. How are you dealing on your cost structure with inflationary pressures?
4: So, yeah, inflation's not real tricky because there's only so much you can raise the price of your food or your beverages. I mean, we've raised prices, not a lot, but a little. But, you know, we just go, fo- we move forward and we give the best possible customer service. So as opposed to, you know, maybe doing one and a half tables a night, you know, we do two and a half tables a night per server to, you know, get that extra push in. I mean, that's what we're, we're striving to do is we're, we're trying to, you know, s- still give the great same customer service, but try to, you know, squeeze a couple extra customers in to kind of offset um, the price.
0: That puts increasing focus on the labor, on the server and the line cook, and the the chefs and the uh, everybody involved, front of the house and back of the house. How does it look in terms of the demand for workers at your restaurants?
4: We have problems, you know, staffing certain positions. But I, I think what it all boils down for my businesses is training.
0: Have you had to rethink compensation? I know it's a tips based industry. But, you know, there is still that minimum or more, perhaps. Have you addressed worker wages?
4: Yes, yes. I mean, so we were hit with a um, what is it, minimum wage um, increase. So it did. It drove up our you know, labor costs quite a bit because it was, it was a pretty big jump for some of the tipped employees. The more training we do, the better we are. Therefore, our staff can handle the business. And that hopefully fills in the gaps on our staffing
0: shortages. That's Brian Parento. He owns two restaurants in Wilton Manors and soon will open a third. You're listening to The Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Each Monday, we examine the stories and hear voices of people shaping the South Florida economy. Share the podcast by subscribing to Sunshine Economy on your favorite podcast app. Still to come on this program, how a live events company is returning to in-person business.
1: We're being creative. We're starting new events. We're bringing things back that we used to do that we don't do anymore.
0: I'm Tom Hudson. This is the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. Thanks for listening. When the COVID-19 pandemic hit two years ago, Jessie Leon was already working from home, but her business came to a stop. She's one of three owners of Pandora Events. It produces lesbian events in South Florida and Orlando. She didn't start out working in the events industry, though. She was an insurance adjuster working on claims that were reopened a few years after Hurricane Andrew waylaid parts of Dade County in 1992. Producing events was just a side job at the time.
1: It started as a hobby, and uh, we we had an event. It was needed in our community back then, uh, the LGBTQ community. There was no lesbians' events. And we did one, and we got like 400 women to show up.
0: Remember how I said Leon did not need to get used to working from home when the pandemic hit? When she quit the insurance adjusting job and started producing events full-time many years ago, she was a work-from-home worker. So when we met to talk about how her company has navigated the pandemic and how business has come back, there was no office to visit. We met at a coffee shop in Miami Shores, finding a spot of shade alongside traffic.
1: To see other corporations and other employees get to experience what I've been experiencing for 20 years, it's awesome because they're, they are being productive at home. Actually, they're working more at home.
0: After canceling events two years ago and then operating with the uncertainty of when and how to stage gatherings, Leone and her business partners are busy getting ready for their largest event. Girls in Wonderland runs four days in June in Orlando. Out of 700 hotel rooms blocked for the event, only about 25 are available.
1: Business is great. Business is booming now. I would say after the pandemic, it's like a surge of like women or LGBTQ want to come out. They want to go to an event they want to feel good they want to feel safe but good
0: what's been fueling that do you think do you think it's pent up because of the the stay at home work from home environment that uh, folks have been in
1: i think they couldn't socialize as much and now that there's space for that we would do a lot of like outdoor events when we first started coming back to business but now everybody's partying they're comfortable they're celebrating life i think
0: how has the pandemic changed your business at Pandora Events.
1: Really helped us. We reset. We started looking at things differently. We started looking where we we're spending our money, how we can add more value to to the customers buying our tickets, and it's 100% better because of it.
0: What'd you find out?
1: Oh, I, I got into QuickBooks. <laughs>
0: You became an accountant. (laughs) I became an accountant.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Just, you know, I just um, saw that maybe I don't need to have as many events. Maybe I need to have less events, but that are longer, you know, looking at it that way. Um, I had a lot more uh, virtual events, too. We did a lot of seminars during that time, a lot of get togethers, and I think it was good. It was nice.
0: How have those events in terms of the economics, the business economics changed from what they looked like prior to the pandemic?
1: You know, we're paying attention to more what the customer wants. You know, instead of the pool, of pool party, for example, being till five, now it's till seven. Things like that.
0: A.M. or P.M.?
1: <laughs> it's P.M. <laughs>
0: okay, just wanted to make sure. You never know. Uh, how has planning those events and the cost of those events been influenced by the pandemic?
1: Um, cost is up everywhere. But um, for what kinds of items? Just uh, let's say uh, production, sound and lights. You know now. You know it, it's. I think it's. I think companies are struggling with having the right staff, so they charge. They have to charge more sometimes just because they don't have the manpower. I mean that's quickly changing, but that wasn't like that like a year ago, for example.
0: How's that affecting the cost structure of? of your business, of what you can pass along to the clients and what you need to be able to absorb.
1: More exclusivity, more like uh, tables, for example, VIP moments, you know, a lot of people want to be with their own crew, their own tribe, still a little separated from the masses, and we offer those opportunities more.
0: Are your prices elastic enough to be able to capture some of those higher costs that you're experiencing?
1: Yes, yes, yeah, it's flexible enough for
0: sure. Have you been very protective with your margins? Yes,
1: we're very protective and we're very protective with the customer as well. You know, we like, for example, um, if we have a pool event and a beer has always been six or seven dollars, we want to make sure it's not ten or fifteen.
0: But yet still have a little headroom to maybe of eight course, to ten. Of course,
1: of course, of yeah. course.
0: How has staging these events changed?
1: more singers more performers more artists coming and actually more influencers that's like a big a big thing you know all these tiktok influencers are a big deal you wouldn't think it's like all these younger kids like having million followers but they come to our event and they have a fan base
0: more or less expensive than what a traditional music artist or they something They
1: are like le- that. way less expensive.
0: Way less expensive. And
1: they're promoting to your target audience, which is which is good.
0: That sounds like a good scalability, good business it's economics. It's good for
1: both parties.
0: Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
1: We help them with their platform and they help us.
0: Pandora Events did not get any of the initial government grants through the Paycheck Protection Program. It did eventually get money from a different program targeting the entertainment industry. The Shuttered Venue Operators Grant was part of a budget act signed in late 2020. It provided $15 billion for live music and theater operators, museums, movie theaters, and live event promoters like Jesse Leone's Pandora Events. And it could be used for more than paychecks. The small company received a little more than $226,000 from the program last June.
1: The grant was; it wasn't a hundred percent perfect fit, but it it helped in what we needed. Um, it it basically helped us like plan other events and also help refund customers. That's that's what the biggest thing was. Is like all these people plan a vacation, they they spent their money, and now they're being transferred to two thousand twenty one, then two thousand twenty two. Now you know some still don't feel safe coming out, and most most do. And we had to be flexible with that. And I feel everybody helped. I feel like banks helped. I, I, I always felt like, on mean, airline flights, we canceled so many flights so many times and everybody was very, very good. How, how
0: do the finances look today? A lot better. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's, we're, we can breathe now. It looks good. Now we're just moving up. You know, it's, we're being creative. We're starting new events. We're thinking we're bringing things back that we used to do that we don't do anymore. Smaller events, like just more—I don't know—like instead of having an event that's all all different kinds of music, it's more targeted. Like let's just do Spanish music for this small group of 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 women. We do a lot more seminars. Uh, We do uh, besides events. We try to help women um, start their families. So we do these free seminars. Now we do them virtually. Before we used to do them in Coral Gables. And it was like, you know, I don't know, 40 women starting their family. And we, we were able to do more of those because it was virtual. Instead of having 40 women, we had 400 women. Like, because it was everywhere. It was the United States.
0: How has the market appetite changed because of the
1: pandemic? Um, for us, what we're noticing is that it's back to when we first started the business. They want us to have more events more frequently instead of as as as, instead of the schedule we had, which is like every few months we would throw an event and then have a real big one. Now they want those smaller events because they want to socialize. Yeah.
0: And are those smaller events? Is that as good a business as the larger events?
1: I mean, not as good, but it definitely keeps us, you know, with with socializing for that big event. You know, it helps the bigger the big event in the long run.
0: And how about how you have approached, for instance, payment terms for clients and how your vendors are approaching payment terms. Have those returned back to pre-pandemic expectations?
1: Everybody everybody wants their money now, just in case something goes wrong. <laughs> but no, I think people are flexible. You know, net 30, give us 30 days at least, and we'll, we'll pay up.
0: <laughs> what does that compare to, say, 18 months ago? Is that different?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, there was no one to pay. There was nothing to do. We <laughs> were just sitting around... You know, hoping, you know, things would change. And now we're starting to see it just, you know, especially here in our state. I mean, I, I, compared to other states, this has been open a long time. How did you,
0: as a businesswoman, think about the reopening of Florida, um, putting politics aside, but just from an economic standpoint?
1: Um, I, I mean, I agreed with it. You know, everybody do what you need to do. If you don't feel comfortable, then don't go out. You know, if you feel comfortable, then wear a mask. Do what we're supposed to do to keep each other safe.
0: Let me ask you about the political environment that you're operating your business in. You refer to your firm as a lesbian powerhouse event promoter, right? Yes. Uh, certainly the LGBTQ community has been squarely in focus with some legislation in the Florida Capitol, specifically the Don't Say Gay bill. Has that impacted business at all?
1: No, I don't think so. It hasn't impacted us. But we definitely help send out the message. You know? We have to take care of each mean? other. Yeah. How about the using the gay word? I mean how can you not use the gay word in school? Like I have children, they're eleven, I have twins, and they're not because I'm gay, but they're super comfortable. They speak of all everyone's um I guess, uh, whether they're gay or bisexual or straight, they speak of them normal. Like, they don't have an issue like adults do. You know, so I think our kids need to learn about everything.
0: Do you see that kind of cultural debate creeping into economics, creeping into business at all?
1: Not with us. We're so niche that... It doesn't. I I haven't seen it affect us. I just see us, you know, helping, fighting for everyone's right in our community like we always have.
0: Speaking with Jesse Leone, one of the three owners of Pandora Events. Joe Johnson is our technical director. Polly Landis is our booking producer. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening. WLRN Public Media.